Welcome to the DC Bar Community's Law Student Podcast with your hosts, Sienna Hurd, 3L at American University, Washington College of Law, Elena Hoffman, 3L at the George Washington University Law School, and Dalali Daggedy, 4L at UDC David Clark School of Law. You're listening to Let's Brief It. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another great episode of Let's Brief It. I'm your host, Dalali Daggedy. Service of process. Remember Pinoya? and the process of waiting to physically serve a party with notice in the state in which the action occurred? Well, a lot has changed since Benoya. Now there are more ways to serve a party, as long as it's reasonable calculated to give the notice to the party. However, a wider range of service method has not made service of process more efficient or less challenging especially for low-income pro se litigants in the domestic violence cases. In today's episode, we will discuss the current DC rules governing service of process in the domestic violence cases, the challenges they impose on low-income pro se litigants, and ways to improve the process. To help us brief this topic is my special guest, Professor Andrew Brzezinski. Professor Andrew Brzezinski, Professor B for short, in addition to being my guest, is also my professor and supervising attorney in the UDC General Practice Clinic. Or should I say, was my professor because I just finished the semester, the fall semester. This semester, as a student attorney, I had the pleasure to work with and learn from Professor B. Professor B is a co-director of the General Practice Clinic and assistant professor of law at UDC Law. Prior to joining the UDC Law faculty in 2020, Professor B taught and worked with students at George Washington University School of Law's Family Justice Litigation Clinic and Georgetown University Law Center Domestic Violence Clinic. In and out of the classroom, Professor B is an active advocate for improving access to justice and closing the justice gap. He has published articles on how the court rules disadvantaged litigants without counsel and how those rules can be modified to maximize procedure justice. One of his published article titled Reforming Service of Process and Access to Justice Framework is the basis of our discussion today. Professor Brzezinski, welcome to Let's Brief It. I am so excited to have you as a guest. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, we will start at the very beginning, getting straight into our discussion. What is service of process and how does it govern domestic violence court procedures? So service of process is part of a procedural due process, right? So under the due process clause, no judgment can be entered against you unless you've had notice and an opportunity to be heard. And service of process is the notice part. Service is delivery. Process is notice of when you have to appear to respond to the claim against you. So this comes from English common law tradition. It's originally was called the writ of capius ad respondendum, in which in England, a sheriff would come and physically arrest you and bring you to the king's court. So in American law, we did have that for a little bit, but we quickly replaced it with paperwork. So we said, we're going to write down where you have to show up. And instead of the sheriff coming and arresting you, you have to voluntarily appear. So service of process gives you notice of where to go and when. And once someone is given that notice, then we say the notice part of due process has been satisfied. The claim can proceed. 
So if they show up, they get to engage the process. If they don't show up, the judge can say, well, they've had their chance, they've had notice, and enter a default judgment and proceed anyway. So in the typical civil case, this may not be viewed as too big of a deal or, or a challenge. A plaintiff suing, for example, a defendant for negligence can just find that defendant, locate them, have someone give them the paperwork and move on. In cases involving intimate partner violence, civil protection order cases are, are the kind that I have in mind, that can be much more challenging because you're asking a survivor of intimate partner violence to essentially go out and find their abusive partner to re-engage them and give them paperwork. Yeah, it sounds straightforward when you read the rule, like service of process, locate and give the paperwork. But when it comes to like the detail of it, it's not necessary as the text of the law has presented. It's not more complex. And in the case where you talk about domestic violence situation, there are more challenges. What are some of the challenges the rule governs service of process? And I know you mentioned some part of you started to touch on that. But more specifically, what are some of the challenges the rule governing service of process imposed on low-income per se litigants? Because we know there is a difference in our respect. Sure. So in domestic violence cases, in D.C. Superior Court, where I've practiced for the last six years, the rule on service of process in that part of the court requires that a person seeking a civil protection order, they're called a petitioner in that part of the court, has to serve the respondent, the person they're filing against, either personally, meaning the paperwork has to get handed to them, or they have to be served at the respondent's home on someone who lives with them. In the rule, it's a co-resident of suitable age and discretion, meaning they're old enough to know what to do, that the paperwork's important, they have to get it to the respondent. So either you have to hand it to the respondent or you have to hand it to someone who lives with them at their home. And that's challenging for a number of reasons in these kinds of cases. In the first instance, as I alluded to earlier, you're asking someone who's just been abused and has taken steps to get protection to re-engage the person who's abused them. And it's actually not even just as easy as that. The petitioner can't be the one to serve process, so they have to find someone else to do it for them. So that means asking family and friends to get involved in this personal aspect of your life. That can be challenging. Some people may be unwilling, and the petitioner may just not want that right, to involve someone and, and talk to their abusive partner and hand them this sensitive paperwork. While there are people you can hire to do this, that costs a lot of money. And so particularly, this disproportionately impacts low-income communities where that's just not viable. This can cost hundreds of dollars to have someone go out and serve process. And while there are systems set up to allow police officers to do this, in fact, under federal law and iterations of district law implementing this, their police officers are required to serve process, that's also challenging. Right? We know that law enforcement can create further complications, particularly in communities of color. And so some petitioners are not eager to involve the police in this part of their lives, um, and, and rightly so. So there are complications with all of that. Even if a petitioner does have someone to serve process, there are further complications because particularly in communities that are low income and are characterized by housing instability, respondents who are unhoused, who are unemployed or who have um, employment instability, it can just be hard to track someone down. So even if you have someone who's willing to serve, it can be difficult to go out and find someone to serve them. And remember, when you're getting a protection order, this is a matter of personal physical safety. And you've got two weeks from when you file to when you have to show up to a judge and have served process. So it's a tight timeline. And all of that works together to impose a series of really practical unfairness to petitioners. Wow. 
everything you just said, I, I, I heard cost, safety, there are more barriers than we can imagine for those who don't have access to the resources because in everything you just described requires resources, requires the ability to be able to pay someone to go out there and serve somebody, be able to have someone available on their time to serve your paperwork to the respondent and challenges, barriers. This is what we, you know, we look at access to justice, the term access to justice coming when we talk about barriers. So going into our next question, in your published article, Reforming Service of Process, you recommend a rulemakers to employ the access to justice framework. When we talk about challenges, immediately we think about access to justice. What is the access to justice framework and how does it improve service of process for the litigants we're talking about? So access to justice generally is the challenge litigants face in accessing a hearing on the merits of their claim. And mostly people have in mind there aren't enough lawyers to go around for folks who are trying to access the legal system, particularly those who can't afford to pay a lawyer. And so this has created a crisis, right? Courts, what, what I tend to call pro se courts as a shorthand in family law, domestic violence, small claims and landlord tenant courts are flooded with litigants who can't afford a lawyer and don't have counsel. And they're accessing a system that was designed for use by attorneys, not regular people. And so as a result, there are these really complex systems and procedural rules, service of process among them, that are erecting barriers to folks accessing a hearing on the merits of their claim and just being able to tell their story and get the relief they're entitled to. So when I think about an access to justice framework for rule reform, what I mean is procedural rules that we talk about as though they're neutral, as though they have no impact on the outcome, that actually stop people from being able to have a hearing on the merits of their claim. And so when I put forward an access to justice framework in my article, what I really mean three things. So first, that we think about procedural rules in context, not in isolation, not as some abstract thing that can apply the same anywhere, but that it matters where rules are applying. And then second, that we think about all the rights that those rules impact, not just one. So here, we're thinking not just about the respondent's right to notice, but also about the petitioner's right to a hearing on the merits, which is itself a procedural due process right. And then third, that thinking about that context and all those rights that are at stake, we find a balance, that we reevaluate rules and make sure that we're balancing those rights in context to come up with the procedural rule that makes the most sense and maximizes all of those rights. So here, in service of process, what I come to is allowing electronic service, which isn't something that's currently permitted by the rules. Professor B, that was very clear, great. Going a bit further, why is that important? Yeah, so for a couple of reasons, really. The most fundamental is that when litigants are accessing a legal system, it's important that they see it, experience it as fair, right? And this is known as procedural justice. And what we know from research on procedural justice is that when litigants go into a legal system and they believe it's fair, they're more likely to comply with the results and they're more likely to believe in that legal system as fair, right? So this has societal impacts. This is when we talk about the rule of law society. This is what we mean, right? A society where we trust that the law is fair and is fairly administered. Now that obviously is a big and complex concept and I'm just talking about one slice of it 
when I talk about service of process, but that's why this matters, right? It matters also that we don't bury one person's right to protect another person's right. And so here, that means that we, we have to care about the right to notice. That's essential, right? And it's, so it's important we have a service of process rule. But when we construct it, we can't only think about that right to notice. It's also important we think about the petitioner's rights. And in context here, the petitioner's right to bodily safety. Um, all of that is wrapped up. Yeah, in, in, in everything you just stated, it sounds like we need transparency when we're doing service of process in reference to the court. Like, even though the respondent may have, you know, be guilty or presumed guilty, alleged guilty, the respondent really deserve the due process of receiving notice. And as much as the petitioner deserve the due process of presenting his or her case before the court. So everything is transparency and they all have to see that it's fair. Is that mm -hmm. correct? That's right. right. You, you also previously, you mentioned electronic service. And in fact, in your article, and I quote, permitting electronic service will help deconstruct the access barrier posed by personal and residential service requirements while increasing actual notice to the defendant. Please explain how electronic service by email, text message, and social media deconstruct the current barriers that we have in the system. Sure. So I guess just to start, right, part of my premise here is rules don't just need to be updated because they are imperfect. They're also often formed long time ago. So all these rules were put together before we had cars, before we had phones, before we had smartphones, internet, technology, right? This was horse and buggy times, right? When the only alternative to handing someone paperwork was putting it in the newspaper at a time when that was the main source of communication really. That was how we got all of our news. And, and it was more community-based, right? We didn't have national or global news media organizations. We had local community papers you would hand out in the town, right? Or the area or the county. It's just not our life anymore. But the rules don't follow that. They don't update after that. And the law is set up to entrench those rules, right? So we have a small C conservative system that wants to protect the rules as they used to be, even they don't make sense anymore. And so what I'm trying to put forward is that's why context matters. That's why we have to think about not just the type of cases, but what world we live in, right? And we all walk around now with these smartphones and have all this information uh, that we can access at our fingertips, literally. And so that's the premise that I'm starting from. And if we expand service of process rules to allow service through those means, right? So if I can serve someone that I've filed a case against by texting them images of the paperwork, emailing them the PDF sending it to them through Facebook Messenger or Instagram message, right, or Twitter direct message. If I can do that, and I can say, hey, they use this, right? So not just out of the blue, not just sending it to some random account, but saying, I text with this person every day, and I'm going to send them this paperwork through text. That is reasonably calculated to give them notice. If you could text someone to say, hey, let's grab dinner, and you would expect they'd be able to make a dinner date with you, you should be able to serve process by that means, right? In some cases, that's even more reliable than if I leave it with someone who lives with them or I send it by certified mail, which is something in some jurisdictions you're allowed to do. And so what, I, what I'm really talking about here is not just saying, hey, we think about defendants too much. I'm saying, actually, we're not thinking about anyone right now, right? We could maximize both parties' rights, not just allowing petitioners to accomplish service more reliably, but actually increasing the chance a defendant sees the paperwork and can respond to it. And that's better for everyone. Great. 
the court system need to get with the time, basically. Like yes. 150 years ago is long gone. We don't need to track anyone down anymore. Yes. But isn't that already the case? You know, this semester we worked on a case where we have, we end up asking for alternative service of process. What's the difference? Isn't that currently the case? Yeah. So if you can't accomplish service personally or at the defendant's home, you can ask the court to allow alternative service. And that basically means here's another way I can get the paperwork to this person and let me prove that that's likely to work. The problem is that you have to ask the court to let you do that. And in order to get there, you don't only have to say, hey, this will work. You also have to say, I tried really hard to serve personally. In the case law, that's called making diligent efforts. And diligent efforts is about as hard as it sounds. You have to try a lot in order to satisfy that. And so for petitioners who are seeking protection from abuse, you're asking them to essentially try everything they know how to do to engage their abusive partner before asking the court to let them text or email service. And so that can be challenging, especially if you're thinking about intimate partner violence as a serious risk to bodily autonomy. So what you could be saying to a petitioner is either risk your personal safety by trying everything you know that you know will be fruitless to reach out and contact and find a respondent or give up and you know voluntarily dismiss your case because you can't you can't try those things safely. And that's that's just a Hobson's choice. And we don't need to offer that. If the petitioner in the first instance was able to just send that paperwork by text rather than trying all those things to find a respondent, then they could come into the judge and say, hey, here's how I know this was likely to give notice. So basically, there is a barrier to get to the alternative service, right? Just having you hear you describe it, it's, it sounds very traumatizing because I can only imagine someone who is trying to avoid their um, abuser, and yet the court is forcing them to go forth and find your abuser and serve their abuser. So I can, it's, yeah. So basically, we need that to change. In other words, it's, it's on the book, but it's not part of our everyday norm. We have to go through, you know, a respondent or a petitioner has to go through another extra step to get that relief. So <laughs> um, that brings us to our next question. And I'm sure our listener can hear that I'm very passionate about amending the current rules governing service of process to remove the barriers for all litigants whether you have the money to do it or you don't have the money to do it. Also, you were instrumental in pushing for the current temporary amendment under the Rule 5 of Domestic Violence Division. Tell us how the rules can be modified to serve and protect the rights of petitioner so petitioner doesn't have to go through a traumatizing even just to get their case before the court. Yeah, in my view, it's a really simple change which is just to allow petitioners to serve electronically and then come to the hearing and show the judge why that was likely to work, why it was reasonably calculated to give notice to the respondent. And that's the legal standard for any method of service under a constitution, under a case called Mullane v. Central Hanover Bank. And that change would mean so much while sacrificing so little procedurally, because it means a petitioner could show up having accomplished service through a method that's actually likely to give notice, explain to the judge why it meets that standard, and increase the chances that respondents in fact get notice. 
Um, and there was a temporary amendment to the domestic violence rules during the pandemic for the last year that basically allowed this. But it expires at the end of this year. And mm -hmm. I think it's not just it's one of those examples of, of something the pandemic has taught us that we could do even outside of a public health concern that would just make sense and expand access to justice. By the way, it is also something that currently under in D.C., under pandemic operating procedures, the family court is allowing this exact change. And while the domestic violence division doesn't allow the exact same thing, I think it should. And I think it would ultimately protect the rights of all parties better than it already does. Hopefully they would change it. <laughs> it wouldn't just be a temporary amendment, bandit to the situation. Wrapping up, what advice do you have for listeners interested in representing survivors of domestic violence in civil protection order and family law cases? I would encourage anyone who wants to do this work to find every avenue to do it. There is a real need here. Uh, an overwhelming majority of survivors of intimate partner violence seeking protection orders have to do it by themselves. And having counsel in those cases can be critical, not just to getting a protection order, but from having a meaningful experience. And I guess the other piece of advice I would give is to always think about the person you're representing and what their particular legal and non-legal goals are, because these cases really are so essential to helping survivors cope with and move past and feel safe after uh, abusive experiences. So I really encourage anyone who is passionate about this work to find any way you can to pitch in because it's really important. That's good advice. Thanks for that. A link to your article we discussed um, today will be posted with this podcast, but what other resources will you recommend for law students to learn more about some of the challenges low-income pro se litigants face under the current Rue Government Services process. I would encourage anyone who's interested in this topic more broadly to read some of the Access to Justice Commission reports that have been released. In D.C., the Access to Justice Commission came out with a report a couple years ago. Nationally, there are studies on the justice gap that have come out. And if you just Google Access to Justice Commission report or Justice Gap report, you'll find them. And it details exactly how pervasive this issue is, not just around service of process, but broadly around folks who appear pro se in court. So I'd encourage anyone who's interested to read more about that. Professor B, thank you so much for your insight on this important topic. I'm very passionate about it. And I think that's why I wanted you to be my guest, being the fact that we work together. Yes. Service of process is not as simple as the plain text of the rules suggests. There are barriers. However, the rules can be reformed to increase access to justice for all, especially low-income pro se litigants. Thanks for listening to Let's Brief It. Until next time, keep briefing it. Thanks for having me. The DC Bar Law Student Community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in substantive content programming, leadership trainings, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org. We look forward to hearing from you.